I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Took a little mini break there. Um, released two episodes back to back, including the hundredth episode, uh, which was really amazing. And then another episode with my friend Jenny. And then quickly, uh, right after that started my lunar circle and have been totally focused and engaged on that and adding a ton of content for the group. And yeah, just feeling really good about, um, the current iteration of the lunar circle and, uh, really grateful for everyone that signed up. And it's such a fucking pleasure (laughs) to, um, share these stories and these archetypes with them and these new ways of seeing the world and sort of watching them, um, sort of come alive with these new insights and epiphanies about themselves and the people around them in the world. And, um, yeah, I, I know I've, I've said how I don't plan on doing another one of these anytime soon. Um, I have had some thoughts about maybe doing one more in the spring, um, and constructing it in such a way that maybe I could record it and offer it as some sort of, uh, like independent study. I'm still not sure on that, but I have considered doing it maybe just once more, um, so if you did not get in on this past round of the Lunar Circle and would like to put your name on the wait list, you can go to anyacotts.com slash Lunar Circle. I can't confirm that I'm going to do this again, um, or at the very least, I can't confirm that I'll do it in the spring. But if I do decide to bring it back, um, that's the place to put your name on the list, and I will let you know when and if I decide to do so. In other news, I do plan on coming out with some really cool, exciting things about, um, the feminine, um, and archetypes and mythologies around the feminine. Uh, that's going to be sort of semi-astrological, but actually you don't need any astrology knowledge or even be interested in astrology to sign up for that. So, um, that's really going to be my main focus and why I'm sort of taking my focus away from the lunar circle after this one time. Plus would like to do some writing, which I've sort of been putting off, uh, for various reasons and would like to not do that anymore. So I promise my not offering the lunar circle again is not as a result of laziness, but as a result of moving my focus to new and exciting things. There is a ton of construction going on outside our apartment in Guatemala right now. There was like excessively loud banging, um, for the past hour. And now it's like switched to drilling, which, uh, seemed a little bit better. But I'm still going to try and uh, record this as quickly as possible. Is that something in my mouth? Um, Record this as quickly as possible in case the banging starts again. 
Um, today's episode is with Sapora Berman, uh, and I'm excited for this episode to bring you this episode. Um, I feel like a lot of the content I've put on this podcast in the past around climate change and environmentalism has been really depressing. And, um, I talk about my friend Marin and Jake's project all the time, death in the garden. And, you know, we all sort of have this idea that we're in a totally helpless situation, um, <laughs> And uh, there's nothing we can do about it. And the only way to save the planet is to completely change how we interact with the world. And it's just one person or even one group of friends. Like, how can we possibly do that? So it ends up um, leading us to like quite a bit of existential dread. And I think the grief and the sorrow and the pain around what's going on with the planet is totally understandable and imperative and needed. Um, but at the same time, it was really nice to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk to someone who's worked in the environmental, um, arena for basically the length of my entire life. Um, and, you know, even if we like, you know, disagree that mainstream environmentalism is working or not working, it's pretty hard to say that I've done anything as meaningful as Sapora has. <laughs> um, and I think she has a lot of interesting nuanced perspectives about, the state of the world and where we're going and sort of where to locate ourselves within the, the possibility of responsibility and how to generate hope um, in what I know for most of us feels like a very hopeless situation. So that's this conversation. Um, what else do I have to share with you? I think I'm going to make it pretty brief. Uh, I do just want to remind you if you would like to become a part of our Patreon community, um, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz is where you can do that. This is something you can do to both help me uh, support the podcast financially. I'm never going to have advertisers on the show, um, and I plan to keep it that way. And it's much more meaningful to get donations from you all, kind of like public radio. Although I realized over the past uh, several months that I feel sometimes really sick of hearing my own voice <laughs> talk about our Patreon community. Uh, it feels rep repetitive and salesy and marketing-y, and I hate all of it. And it's frustrating because I do know how valuable this community space is, and I'm really happy about the perks that I offer through Patreon and everything that's going on in there, but I feel so bored by hearing myself talk about it, and I figure that must mean that you might be bored uh, hearing me talk about it too. Plus, we have like so many perks and so many different facets of the community that I feel like when I list them all off, um, people must get overwhelmed by information. And it's like the more perks I offer, the more confused people are, which is unfortunate and ironic. Um, so I figured instead I, I had this idea that I would reach out to people who are in the community, who've been a part of the community or participating it and have them share their thoughts about what they've gained from supporting the podcast and, uh, becoming involved in the Patreon community. So, I'm really grateful to bring you their voices instead of mine, because let's be honest, you guys listen to my voice a lot, and I listen to my voice a lot. Um, and really, the value in joining Patreon are the people in the community. Um, you already kind of get access to me in a way. Uh, not that you don't get more access through the community, but it's really each other. Um, all of you are uh, what's valuable about the space to begin with. And so I wanted to introduce you guys to the people in the community who um, I get to interact with and who I get to see on Zoom and who I get to read books with and do workshops with and 
all of the above. Um, so I hope you'll join us. And uh, if you have any questions about that, you can always reach out to me, anyakotz at gmail.com. Send me a message on Instagram. I love hearing from you guys about any and all things, uh, music recommendations, people that you'd like to hear on the show, topics that you'd like me to discuss, discuss all of the above. Um, this is really all about meeting each other, uh, real life and remotely and, uh, keeping these relationships going and building this community in a sort of stable and solid and legitimate way, way into the future. Um, so Here's Isabel to tell you a little bit more about the community. And I'm going to play you in to today's episode with uh, My City Was Gone by The Pretenders. So enjoy the song, enjoy this conversation, and I will catch you on the other side. Hi, my name is Isabel, and I have been a member of Anya's Patreon community for about a year and a half. In that time, I have been able to give a workshop, participate in workshops, I have been part of the book clubs and one of my all-time favorite books, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, was born out of this book club. Every time I go by Golden Rods and Asters, all I can think of is this amazing and beautiful community. I think that is the greatest benefit in the Patreon, um, in participating in Patreon, is that this is such a tight-knit, authentic community. We care about each other. We are friends. And um, I have been able to meet several people in real life and forge really wonderful friendships. We have gone foraging. We have met at conferences. Um, we have visited each other's houses. And I just wouldn't change this for the world. Every time we have something that we need to run by each other. We go to the Discord server and we talk or we message each other. Just the value of community that this brings is just priceless. So I hope to meet some of you soon.
to Ohio But my family was gone I stood on the back porch There was nobody home I was stunned and amazed My childhood memories with Sapora Berman. Um, I'm really grateful to have you on the show. The interesting backstory about how I found you is that I, I spend summers, uh, most summers, in a van. 
in the U.S., traveling across the West in like Idaho and Montana, California, basically everywhere that's on fire and continuing Mm. to be more on fire every year. Um, And I've been doing it just a few years now, and it's, it's really, I mean, interesting, but mostly devastating to see how... It sort of continues to get worse, um, or at least that's my um, perception. And this past summer, I had an interesting experience where we were driving. It was like an 80-mile dirt road across Idaho, and we were on this road to escape a wildfire in the smoke so we could breathe better. Um, But in the process of doing so, we ended up uh, driving through the remnants of a previous forest fire that had burned hundreds of thousands of of acres. So we were like driving away from 100,000 acre fire with the smoke in the distance, driving through hundreds of, I mean, and I've, you know, it's one of those things as I'm sure you can recognize where, you know, when you think about something like that, like, oh, a hundred thousand acres, it's hard for us as humans to comprehend that scale. Mm -hmm. And I I think prior to this experience, I had some more maybe like hope or optimism of like, oh, yeah, we can naturally regenerate these forests and like change the way we like reforest things. And it was a little bit of a wake up call for me, honestly, to drive through destruction of that magnitude um, and to see it just like being replaced with like Douglas firs that will eventually burn again. Um, and so I, I felt I I felt sort of very small and very helpless in that moment. And I went on to my, um, I have a community of supporters who support the podcast. And I asked if anyone knew of someone who might be able to speak to this and provide some context. Um, And many of them recommended you. So I'm really grateful to have you on the show. that's how I end up here. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, So I would love if you could maybe start, Um, just by describing yourself, I sort of hate to introduce the guests myself and prefer them to kind of speak about themselves in their own words. Um, So I'd love to hear that. And then, you know, whether I know you, you exist within the realm of environmentalism, obviously, but I'm curious if you ever feel alienated by that title or by that word um, and ways you might sort of feel different than what maybe people think of as mainstream environmentalism and what what that might be. Oh, okay. That's a big meaty question right from the outset. I love it. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me here. This sounds like it's going to be fun and also interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So um, how to introduce myself. Formal titles. um, I'm the chair of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative, which is a global initiative that I um, helped create. It's only a year old. Um, we are working together to uh, stop the expansion of fossil fuels everywhere based on principles of equity and justice to mm-hmm. help the world stop using trillions of dollars to build stuff that we can't use. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, actually, when you say it like that, it sounds kind of uh, crazy, but the, <laughs> I, I didn't realize when I started working on climate change and specifically on fossil fuels, I, you know, it's all so complicated and I started working specifically on the fossil fuel treaty and because I, at some point, I'm Canadian, that's part mm-hmm. of my intro too, is I'm Canadian, I live on yeah. the unceded territories of the uh, Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish and Musqueam First Nations in Vancouver, Canada. And when I started working on climate change, I, you know, 
obviously was led to the tar sands. It's one of the largest industrial projects on earth. It's, you know, Canada's emissions are rising quickly because of oil and gas production. Mm. And um, I didn't realize that all of climate policy and all of our international agreements are based on reducing the demand for fossil fuels or, or, or getting countries to commit to means to reduce emissions, mm. but that no one's regulating the production. So right. here we are, all these international agreements and all these climate policy agreements. And um, meanwhile, the fossil fuel industry is on track to produce 120% more oil, gas, and coal today um, than uh, we can ever burn and mm-hmm. have a safe planet. And, yeah. and so my work now focuses primarily on stopping the production of fossil fuels and trying to create international agreements that will make that happen. So that's a big part of who I am right now. And, um, and I'm also the international program director at an environmental organization that I helped found uh, decades ago called Stand.Earth. We used to be called Forest Ethics. And my journey into this work started 30 years ago as a forest conservation activist um, and um, actually started on the logging roads and blockading in Clackwood Sound on Vancouver Island. I was the blockade coordinator in 1993 before we even had internet. <laughs> And um, during that protest and that summer, I was charged personally with 857 counts of aiding and abetting, and I faced six years in jail. I was 23. And, yeah. and, and that kind of is, it was a defining moment in who I am, because mm-hmm. it was, at the time, I was thinking I was going to go into science, and I was going to go into law, and then, and then I just got so angry with how... Um, democracy was failing yeah. <laughs> to stop the logging of our old growth forests. And eventually, as I learned more and more and had my climate reckoning to stop the expansion of the fossil fuel industry. Um, and so now I am an environmental campaigner or, and, and, and you're, and you're right. I, and sometimes I find those, that term environmentalism or environmental campaigner alienating, um, because, um, it puts you in a box you know, as though you care about big trees, you don't care about people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the the fact, and sometimes I find it empowering because the the fact is, we need more people who are identifying as 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 prioritizing. You know, the air we breathe, the water we drink, a, sust- a you know a stable climate. Right. And but I don't see it as separate. I don't see it as separate as democracy from democracy activism, from justice activism, from you know. It, it to me right now, you know, maybe I got into this because of a love for big trees and bears. But today, you know, I'm I'm here because climate change is the defining issue of our age. It's a moral challenge. I mean, people are dying every day. More people will lose their homes today as a result of climate change and fires, like you described, and floods than they do with war. Yeah. And then figuring out a different way. Um, for our society to function, the laws that are going to be necessary for the systemic change that we need is just now that's the the work of my life. And that's not environmentalism, you know, and that is it's everything from economic theory to 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 uh, social justice. Right. Yeah, I, I, I sometimes get lost. And I think this experience I had driving through those burnt forests this summer made it quite clear. And I have a lot of friends who are younger and trying to sort of sort through these things and find their own place within the environmental movement. And I think a lot of us get stuck uh, 
like in where to focus, because I think sometimes I think about, you know, like you said, this sort of um, I premise or idea about personal responsibility. And if we, you know, just one person, if we can just recycle the thing, then we're going to be OK versus focusing on the, the manufacturers and the corporations that are producing massive amounts of plastic. To me, it sounds it seems like some sort of distraction from um, what might really make a difference. And, and I think we get caught in this sort of like, should I find these sort of grounded, specific real world logistical things to work on? Or is there a greater existential problem, let's say with our individualist mindsets or our lack of community mindsets, our lack of connection to nature? Um, I'm sure it's not an either or situation, but I'm just curious how you think about that relative to like, what we can do as a person versus what we need to change, you know, as a, as a Western culture and how we approach mm -hmm. these issues. I mean, there's no question in my mind that we've, we've all grown up, both of our generations, um, being, having a drummed into our head that our roles to participate in society are as a consumer. Yeah. You know, it's it's about lifestyle. It's about what we buy. You know, the corporations, the governments are all pushing that on us constantly. Um, and and, you know, that that is, I think, at the root of our problem. You know, we need to be see seeing ourselves as, as as citizens and not just as consumers. We need to remember that elected officials work for us. We need to find ways together uh, to influence uh, those agendas and and it's so much more than than you know whether or not you can afford to buy an electric car or or whether or not you walk to work you know it's it's like what was that famous quote decades ago from Al Gore it's not about light bulbs it's about laws hmm. you know he was entirely right um but thinking about it as the need for system change can also be paralyzing for an individual um yeah. and the best um interventions and activism that I've seen in 30 years of trying to figure out how to do social change and, and run campaigns and do activism is the stuff that is focused. So if you try and take on everything, you're taking on nothing most yeah. of the time. And, and so I, I often think about it as, you know, it, what is the thin edge of the wedge? What is the thing um, that you can focus on that is going to create a ripple effect into other industries, other companies, other issues. How do you how do you be and push uh, for the for the model in an area that you care about? So, so that means looking at what you're working on and trying to figure out: is there a way to set an example? Is there a way that this can have a ripple effect? You know, when we design corporate campaigns at Stand.Earth, Earth, we're always looking at: okay. What company, if we targeted them, if they changed, would have an influence on this whole sector? When we launched the fashion campaign at Stand, um, a, a climate fashion campaign, we launched against Levi's. A lot of people were angry with us because they were like, Levi's is one of the most responsible companies. And they are. They had great, they had some amazing environmental policies. But at that time, not a single company, fashion company on earth, had what's called a scope three climate policy, which means that They've got a climate policy for their stores, you know, what, you know, how much energy they use in their stores. They've got a climate policy even for their transportation of their goods, hmm. but they don't have a climate policy for the manufacturing of their goods. So that's what scope three is. And, the, and, and manufacturing is 80% of the fashion industry's emissions. 
And so what we said to Levi's is if you create a policy, then that has an impact on what energy all of the all that manufacturing uses. You as a massive you know bill, multi-billion dollar corporation can say to companies in Vietnam or Turkey, we only want you to be making our clothes if you're powered by renewable energy. And and because you know new coal plants were being built just to make just to just for just for the expansion of the fashion industry. Right. Anyways, so Levi's did become one of the first companies in the world to have a comprehensive climate policy, and they did that did start influencing other companies. So we're always looking for that thin edge of the wedge. But on a personal level, I think it's really important for people to look at where their juice is. <laughs> like I've gone and shifted my work at various times because I'm like, oh, that's a really important issue. I should work in that place on that issue, and and you just don't do your best work there. Like focus working on during the day on what keeps you up at night Mm. because that's going to be where you put your best effort where you have you know all the juice so not just which issue area but also how you do it like for a long time I was like I need to do policy there's not clear enough policy on how to you know get off fossil fuels and we need to so I like waded deep into policy and implementation of, of of policies and laws I suck at it just to be clear. Like, I don't have the patience for it. Yeah. I, I'm not a policy person. I'm as long I'm dumb. I'm smart. I've got three degrees. I can figure out policy, but it's like pulling teeth for me. I hated it. At the end of every day, I just felt like a dish rag and, and exhausted and not inspired. But when I focus on the movement building, the mobilization, the building the big tent, the doing the speeches, the designing um, campaigns, I absolutely love it. So that's my happy place. And so I really think that people have to just look at both their skills and also the issues that are really important to them and find a way to work on that. Right. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I had someone on the podcast recently and we talked about like um, finding your role in any sort of, you know, social justice movement. And I think unfortunately, especially with like the advent of social media and the internet that we have this one idea of what activism is, you know, like you're posting a bunch of stuff online or, you know, you're on the front lines and there are so many different roles. And obviously we need people to participate in all of those. And some people are storytellers and some people are leaders and some people want to be on the front Mm -hmm. lines or, um, so yeah, I think that's, important to focus on like what lights you up in a way. Um, exactly. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit more about this consumerism thing. (laughs) Um, because I think sometimes that's where I get tripped up with mainstream environmentalism about like, you know, you mentioned like the electric car, for example, like, okay, but what happens to the batteries when they all die? Like, where do we put those? You know, there's, you know, is it, um, not that you necessarily have the answer to this, but I sometimes think like, is it possible to actually address this issue comprehensively within such a capitalist consumerist environment and culture? Do we need to, you know, in addition to policy, in addition to coming out with, um, more environmentally friendly things and processes, do we also need to fundamentally adjust the way we interact with the world? Um, Yes, we do. (laughs) Um, But the onus for that shouldn't be on the individual. So 
so there are fascinating policies and laws that if put in place, put limits um, on capitalist systems, put limits, oh, sorry, there are the dogs, <laughs> um, on corporations. Um, so, for example, I was just reading this amazing book, which I recommend to everyone, by J.B. McKinnon. It's called The Day the World Stopped Shopping. It's this fascinating book where he does this thought project looking around the world at how do you actually constrain consumerism and consumption and what are the impacts. And he actually started it before COVID, but then got all this real-life interesting data during COVID because people did stop shopping. Right. And then we started shopping even more yeah. online, which had its own implications. Yeah. But in that book, I found out that there are laws, for example, that are starting to be put in place in some European countries that require companies to not build into their manufacturing um, break dates. So there are a lot of companies, like have you ever noticed that you have a warranty for something? Mm. You're, it's like my dryer happened. This happened with my dryer. I had a 10-year warranty. 10 years and two days, the damn thing broke. And I was like, wow, that is so weird. Now I have to buy a new one. And now, so I was like, I am right. not buying one. Look at all the, everything that metal and everything that went into producing this dryer. I'm just going to go it fixed. And everywhere I went, they were like, eh, it's going to cost more to fix it than it is to buy a new dryer. You just have to buy a new dryer. Everyone has one of those stories. It's about your blender. It's about your iPhone. It's about your whatever. We're just constantly pushed by the way companies function to buy the new one to no longer fix it. I'm... 52 now. I'm old enough to remember um, growing up with the same washer and dryer for 30 years. I'm, you know, with the same, like we fixed stuff. Our generation fixed stuff. So, and it, it really struck me reading the book, like, well, why don't we do that now? So we don't do it because corporations have baked in to the design of products. Um, you know, this widget can turn 30,000 times. And so let's weaken it so it can only turn 10,000 times because that means at the end of 10 years, it will break. And so baked into the design is weakening certain parts of the design of appliances, etc., so that they won't last, so that we will be forced to buy a new one. And so now there are certain European countries that are making this illegal. And that changes the manufacturing of goods. So we don't have to keep purchasing more and more and more. And there's little fixes like that in legislation that can shift um, the, you know, the goal of production and manufacturing so it's not just about profit. It's not just about right. more consumption. And, and that's why we need governments. Like governments need to put in place those laws and policies so we don't have out-of-control uh, corporate greed. Governments exist in order to maintain the public good. And what we've seen in the last 20, 30 years is this dramatic shift of powers towards corporations and away from governments. And, and you know, so, you know, I've done a lot of corporate campaigning. I've met with a lot of corporations over the last 30 years. And while there are good people everywhere, I would say that there are very few corporations in the world that aren't really their their primary goal is and their bottom line is to increase their profits, and and you know we can't live and be sustainable in a system like that. We need checks and balances in that system, and so um, and I you know and, and I think those are uh, laws and policies that are governed to constrain to protect um, uh, public good and especially in terms of you know water air climate, et cetera, biodiversity, 
but also uh, to to constrain corporations, um, you know, in ways that are going to ensure that that our lives um, uh, are not uh, a constant um, rush for uh, new consumption. So I think I think one of the other um, really interesting questions is what kind of information are people getting, um, and what are the you know, right now we have thousands and thousands of ads that bombard us every day, online, in real time, etc. Mm-hmm. And um, and those ads um, kind of have a have a have a impact on how we think about the world, how we define happiness and success as this constant race towards buying more and more and more stuff. Um, and again, there should be laws around that. And our governments actually should be filling some of that ad space. You know, this is a requirement in the Paris Agreement for nation states to do significant advertising to engage um, citizens in, in, in working together to fight the climate crisis. Mm. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I barely ever see that. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, this idea of, you know, I think along with this focus on, you know, individual or human responsibility, I think is also leading to this, um, uh, untruth around that humans, um, are bad for the planet. Um, and I think this is such a, such an unfortunate idea. Um, and I think something that if we, uh, learn a bit more about indigenous cultures we recognize as a totally false mythology um, and that we do have or could fulfill or uh, an important role in the sort of greater ecology of the planet. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious how much you've come across that in your own work and this sort of demonization of humans and sort of needing to show them that there is a way we can be stewards and in fact have an important role here and that maybe that knowledge, um, you know, could make quite a bit of difference if we stopped feeling so shitty about ourselves and, and felt like, you know, we individually weren't the ones that caused this problem. Yeah. You know, there's so much embedded in there. I, I, I remember the shift in myself, the more, you know, in university as a kind of young activist trying to understand, you know, what to do in this kind of growing sense of, of, of guilt, you know, that, and which is paralyzing. And, 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 and then learning about, you know, in political science about, um, and, and, not just in classes, but for me, actually, you know, walking through clear cuts in British Columbia and asking the questions of like, well, wait a minute, who benefits from this? And where is the wood going? And how many jobs are being created for this much destruction? And and at some point, that guilt started shifting into anger. And and that and and that was for me a process of really learning about um you know the the systems that are 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 set up um, to support extraction, extraction of resources, extraction of you know um, uh, of of people's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, I love it. I love that that term. I think really popularized by Naomi Klein, extractivism as as what we're 
you know, as what we're fighting in lots of ways. Yeah. And, um, and, and it, and it starts to, um, open up, um, the idea, um, that we can be, um, we can be living differently, um, that we're not all, um, contributing to this in the same way. Um, and we're not, you know, a CEO with the stroke of their pen can decide the fate of hundreds of thousands of hectares of forest of whether or not we drill for new oil. That's entirely different, um, than a, than a single person's, um, a carbon footprint. It's not to say that lifestyle, of course, isn't important. I, it sure it is, um, but it's uh, but it's nowhere near as important um, as holding those who have decision making power to account and changing um, systems. I want to get back though to the com- the conversation you were saying around when you started this conversation. You were saying you know you have this reaction to environmentalism because even that Tesla or that electric car or whatever has an impact on the world and you know, everything does, right? Yeah. Everything has an impact on the planet. Humans have an impact on the planet. Everything we create has an impact on the planet. It's this constant question of trying to figure out um, how to um, not just minimize our impacts, but to, to ensure that our activity is regenerative, that we're giving back right. as humans. Because if we break down this distinction between we're humans and then there's nature and a planet and, and start thinking of ourselves as part of nature, which we are, we are a species on this planet that like every other species depends upon functioning systems for our well-being. That's actually true. And we have made such an impact on the planet that now, um, uh, ecosystem well-being that supports human health, and many other species is now in question. And, and so we have a greater impact than any other species. So we have a responsibility, but we also have a greater potential for change to have systemic change very quickly, um, in, in, in order to have a positive impact. And so I notice in a lot of environmental theory these days and a lot of environmental policy, we're starting to see this term, regenerative agriculture, regenerative economies. And I think it's fantastic. Um, And what's really interesting is we're now at a point in human history where we actually have most of what we need already above um, the surface of the earth. Because we have mined so much, um, we have drilled so much, um, that it's already above the surface of the earth. So if we can actually create closed loop systems where we're, um, where we're getting our metals from what we've already used, where we're getting our fossil fuels from what we've already used, where we're, you know, for what fossil fuels that we'll need in the future. Um, uh, and that, that's starting to happen. We're actually even starting to see whole countries talk about legislation, um, that is closed loop legislation to create that, um, uh, those more uh, regenerative systems. And I think that that's super exciting. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Um, yeah, I, I mean, not that we can put our finger on exactly the moment at which this happened, but I think about the, you know, the, the CEO of the company with a stroke of a pen making decisions about all these hectares of land that they themselves have never seen or experienced. And, you know, I yeah. wonder, like, 
you know, I sometimes think, have this fantasy of like if we could bring those people, if I could take that person and put them into nature and like make them camp out in nature for three weeks, you know, would that make or break their um, relationship to the planet? And like, is there a part of our, is there a part of that decision, you know, simply based on the fact that we've literally like lost touch with the natural world and that cities and agriculture and all these sort of industries have allowed us to forget. Um, and whether, you know, as humans, we have sort of an innate ability to understand and to connect with nature. And maybe if we were sort of forced to do that more often, that we would engage in the world differently. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. the, it, it, and there's tons of studies on that, actually, that mm. people connecting more deeply to nature, having experiences in nature um, makes them helps helps us to make different decisions because we do see ourselves as a part of it. I mean, we're so we're so disconnected. Ask the ask a person right now, where does your water come from? Um, you know, most of them can't answer it. It's actually hilarious in the focus groups. I, it comes from my tap. It comes, like the, the, people actually have no idea where their watershed is or, um, right. you know, basic information about their, um, about their survival. Hmm. Uh, and, 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 and I think it is kind of, and, and it's naive to think that that would be the revolutionary thing. Um, what I discovered when I was working in, on, on forest conservation is that most of the people I was negotiating with in the major logging companies started as foresters because they love forests, right? That's how they started. Yeah, right. Yet, yet they were now in positions where they were, you know, um, part of companies that were logging, clear-cut logging hundreds of thousands of hectares of forests a year and, and um, at crazy rates, a lot of it old growth. And, but they were able to justify that to themselves. And what I realized, and there's some incredible research on this. There's a a, a, a really great book by Jonathan Haidt um, that really goes into this in depth around how we sort information, hmm. and and we sort information according to our tribes, according to ideologies that are, are that are reinforced through our daily activity. So even if someone has aha climate reckoning moment or connected to nature reckoning moment, if their community, people who they like and respect, the validators, their tribes, are all saying something different, then they'll find ways to, to justify what they're doing um, through a lens that works for them. And I'll give you a great example, actually, because when I first started working on climate change, um, one of the things I did in, is um, meet with some of the uh, CEOs of the largest oil companies in the world. And I did that because um, I just couldn't believe that I was reading this stuff on climate science. And here were these people, brilliant people, some of them self-made billionaires, um, you know, and they weren't worried about their kids, that they weren't seeing the dramatic increase in fires and floods and you know, climate policy is complicated, but 86% of the emissions trapped in our atmosphere come from three products, oil, gas, and coal. And I wanted to understand for myself what these people who create those products were thinking. What's the future of your industry? If we know this and we know that we have to wind down fossil fuel production, why aren't you supporting climate policy? And 
it was a fascinating journey. I did it for three years. I met, um, I met some super smart and really wonderful people. And when they, most of them already knew about climate change. They believed in climate change. They had seen the science. They understood it. But they had convinced themselves that their activity was going to be okay. Yes, the world would use 80% less oil in the future. But the barrels that the world does use should be mine. All of them thought that for various reasons. Ours are produced this way. Ours are produced this way. I even had this one really lovely woman explain to me that, you know, yes, climate change is critical and we urgently have to address it. And, you know, we have to do it in a way that allows oil production to increase because there's all these people in Africa that still don't have power. And it's our job to help those poor people keep the lights on. And I was just like, <laughs> boom, boom, you know, banging my head against the wall. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're going to take the moral high ground here? And, but, there, but that was the justification. That was the way that they justified um, w- what they were doing. And, it, and I learned a lot from that process. It, 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 it's not about facts, right? This is about motivating people to change. They have to see themselves in it. They have to understand um, and they also have to hear the information from people they trust and see how it fits into their worldview. And so you can kind of see why we're so polarized now. We have kind of a lot of progressive communities, indigenous leadership, activists, you know, keep it in the ground. Mm-hmm. And then you have all these people who are, who, who are really, you know, they're getting defensive and they're just trying to defend what they've always known. Like, but we have jobs and we have families and what we do is good, isn't it? We're providing the world with heat. And, you know, and they're, and there's just, they're not even having a conversation. It's just butting up against each other's, you know, um, worldviews and lived experiences and lived communities. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of that. I don't forget the name of it, but that like psychological idea of like you see someone being murdered on the street and you think like, oh, someone else will <laughs> call the cops. Yeah. There's there are enough of us, right? Um, yeah, I I'd love to talk a bit about um, forests specifically, and and I think a lot of people don't understand the process here of what goes on as it relates to clear cutting and and reforestation and. Um, and then wildfires and a lack of diversity, which leads to more wildfires. Um, and I think, again, sort of, I had some concept of this prior, um, but I, I think I had more uh, faith or hope in the reforestation efforts than I, hmm. uh, yeah, than, than was realistic or fair. And I, and I think looking at seeing the, this, these dead, dry landscapes being, you know, um, quote-unquote, reforested with what looked like a monocropped tree farm um, was just like, there was a sign, actually, that I, I drove past in Idaho, which is quite conservative, quite a red state for the most part. And there was a sign that said, environmentalists, you own this. And my first reaction, and and they were talking about the forest fires, that like these environmentalists who are saying, you know, we can't clear cut these forests because there's this species and that species um, is leading to these wildfires because they're just big forests, quote unquote, forests full of like one Douglas fir tree. Um, And... And then upon like re-examining, I thought like I disagree, but it's an interesting point that this kind of like naivete that we have 
around that we can cut down an old growth forest and somehow very easily allow it to regenerate is um, sort of untrue. <laughs> and, you know, what are we helping or hurting the problem by, you know, obviously, like we need to not clear cut the forest to begin with or or have the patience to allow them to, to regrow um, naturally, which, of course, takes forever and you don't see trees. And um, but there seems to be this kind of cycle that's happening here uh, that I can sort of see multiple sides of, um, you know, that it's not that easy to clear cut an area and allow it to go back to what it was. Um, and how are our strategies in like trying to do that? Maybe also, um, uh, you know, making these areas be way less diverse and making them more susceptible to um, uh, deforestation and fires. I know that was like a very complex question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, the, the answer is different for different forest types. That's the first thing I learned when I started mm -hmm. working on forest conservation years ago. I mean, the, the, I mean, what is a clear cut? A clear cut is an, is an opening where, where, where multiple trees are given, are taken out in a given region. Yeah. So how, how big an opening, um, can or should happen, um, is dependent on, 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 on the forest type. So, what we know for all forest types is that strength is in diversity, diversity of, um, uh, of, of tree species, diversity of age. So the forests that are um, less susceptible to fire and disease um, and blowdown are the forests that have um, uh, an uneven canopy, you know, different ages. Um, that's very true, especially of, of forests in the Pacific Northwest, temperate rainforests, um, and that um, if you have uneven ages, an uneven canopy, different age trees, different species of trees, that forest is going to be more diverse. Um, you're going to hold more soil. Um, you're going to have less blowdown. Fire is going to go through in a small and an uneven way. The forest itself is going to hold more moisture. When you clear cut a large area, especially in an ecosystem like a temperate rainforest where large openings are not natural, um, then uh, you end up with a lot of soil loss um, and um, an incredible dryness and, and trees will struggle to grow there. And the model that we have is clear cut the old growth, replace it with a tree farm. So all the same age, all the same species. So we're, we're dramatically weakening. Um, those uh, ecosystems. Mm. Fire is natural in some ecotypes, not in temperate rainforests at the scale we're seeing it. Um, you know, in boreal forests, um, some types of boreal forests, um, which are more in the center of the, um, in the center of North America, uh, northern and, and farther to the north in Canada, then, you know, sure, you're going to get in some drier ecosystems, you're going to have fire that's naturally and fire that is essential for regenerating those forests. Right. Um, and so you, you do need, you know, some fire management. Um, but there are not, I mean, I've been working on forest conservation off and on for 30 years, and I don't know of environmental campaigns that have been against that. You know, in fact, what the environmental campaigns have all called for is forestry that is designed based on 
um, knowledge that we have from the ecosystem regenerative processes itself. Mm -hmm. That's why the forestry practices need to be different in the different forest ecotypes. Um, but some of the principles that we know work are selective logging, clearing out a whole forest at one time and replacing it with a crop, um, uh, you know, should be uh, termed deforestation it, in the global guidelines it's not deforestation is also is often a term used in tropical when it's just replaced with agriculture yeah. um, and and that actually leads to really wonky international accounting for how much deforestation is happening on the globe mm -hmm. but it, it, it's as soon as you're actually changing an ecosystem to being a different type of ecosystem you it, it, it leads to uh, weakening and slow growth and susceptible to fires and, and bugs and that's what we're seeing. In Canada this year, you know, we've had some of the most intense um, debates on old growth um, ever in our history because there's so little left. Yeah. And, you know, shockingly, we're still logging thousand-year-old trees in, in Canada. Um, and so over about a thousand people now have been arrested in Canada on Vancouver Island in Ferry Creek this year. Um, I went and blockaded with them. I was arrested in May again. Um, for blocking old growth, which is, is feel, felt like I went gone into some kind of horrible time machine. The whole idea that we launched our first old growth campaign 27 years ago on the blockades on Vancouver Island, and then 27 years later I was blockading again to protect old growth. It was it was a little bit depressing, um, but also it really I'm really inspired by the movement out there. It's not done by one organization. It's just people. It's just people showing up and willing yeah. to put their bodies on the line. Just to 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 slow down uh the logging of this old growth it's been really inspiring actually yeah yeah i think um some of the people that recommended i have you on the show were were there as well from canada um so yeah i i i think and talk about this all the time to the what you mentioned as far as um fires being natural to certain ecosystems and uh i have a couple of friends of mine young in their uh, mid 20s who are doing a project right now called death in the garden, um, trying to make us less afraid of the sort of natural cycles of life that occur in nature, um, that there will hmm. always be death, that there will always be regeneration. And, um, I wonder how much you've thought about this too. Like, is there a, a you know, we're so far gone at this point, so it's hard to say, but, you know, is part of our kind of fear of death or a cultural desire to, you know, not see pain or not see suffering, um, that we're fighting fires sometimes maybe where they shouldn't be fought. And maybe those forests were meant to burn and to regenerate naturally. And that we're sort of, um, yeah, just sort of preventing these natural cycles across the board. And that maybe part of that is our lack of connection with nature and lack of awareness that, um, mm. the world regenerates in natural ways. Um, uh, maybe, um, and I, but I think probably more true 10 years ago today, the extent mm. of fires that are sweeping the planet are so beyond, um, what are natural cycles, um, that, um, we have to do everything we can, uh, to, to stop it and, and slow it down. I mean, we, we there are hundreds of fires burning in the Amazon, yeah. That is, that's a tropical rainforest. That is yeah. not, that is not a, a, a healthy cycle. It, it shouldn't be happening at, at all. Yeah. Um, and, and we can't afford right now, um, to, 
honestly, to lose very much standing biomass. I mean, trees are standing carbon. That's what yeah. they do. They store carbon. Right. Um, they're actually the technology that we need. <laughs> and we need to um, restore our forests. We need to protect what's left of our old growth. We need to be planting as much forest as we can. Um, and, you know, other crops that are going to store carbon. Uh, if there's kind of one focus or one thing that I would emphasize, um, especially for a young audience today, it's that we are in a race against the clock because while we can debate all we want, what's right and what's wrong and what policies, then the atmosphere doesn't negotiate. This is physics. Hmm. We are at 416 parts per million of carbon trapped in our atmosphere today. Anything above 350 causes um, uh, massive disruption in our climate systems. Um, so that's why we're seeing these fires, these floods, um, extreme weather uh, all across uh, the planet. Um, and you, people dying. Tens of thousands of people died this year as a result of fires and floods and extreme weather. It's happening now in our lifetimes. Climate change is not something anymore that's going to happen in the future. It's actually happening in our lifetimes. And so if we're going to slow it down, um, if we're going to uh, actually try and get back, that's what net zero is, beyond zero, get back to somewhere closer to 350, then we need to suck all that carbon out of the atmosphere that's smothering the earth. And I think a lot of the technologies that are being proposed by the oil industry, carbon capture and storage and air sequestration, I mean, I hope they work. Um, most of the time, they're just um, proposing them as a justification to continue to expand fossil fuel production and pollute more, mm -hmm. which we can't afford. Yeah. Um, and, and, and also, they're pretty expensive, and I don't think public dollars should be going towards them um, you know, if the fossil fuel industry wants to clean up its act, well, then, you know, more power to them. I hope they're successful. Um, but public funding and government funding and our society's efforts should be going to planting more forests, protecting more forests, and trying to ensure um, that, they that we retain the standing biomass we have. Because every ton of carbon right now that's released into the atmosphere matters. Every ton of carbon that we don't release into the atmosphere will save lives. We know that now. And, and so that, that has to be a, a priority. So protecting nature, you know, planting more trees, that's part of it. And the other part of it is, is working as quick, quickly as we can to change our systems so that we're more electrified, uh, that our transport is electrified, that we're using renewable energy and that we're not allowing the expansion of any more fossil fuel production, oil, gas, or coal. Yeah. So... Are there are there groups that are working toward um, quote unquote reforesting forests in ways that are more natural than these sort of monocropped tree farms? Um, and if so, like what logistically, what does that look like? And how, you know, when you decimate um, the ecology of a place, can you bring it back? <laughs> Is that possible? And at what point? How far back do we go? And I'm just sort of curious, like what that actually looks like. Um, like uh, driving through that forest yeah, in, yeah. Uh, no, in really Idaho, important. I was like, okay, well, someone just needs to like be the steward of this land and like sit here and, you know, look at uh, the, you know, the different aged crops and, um, plants and animals, et cetera. But I know that's, you know, it's complex. So I'm just, I'm curious to hear about that. But, well, the cool thing is there are starting to be, I don't know about every place in the world, but certainly there are starting to be, um, in Canada, um, uh, indigenous guardian programs. 
um, where indigenous mm. communities are being resourced to um, uh, conduct trainings for their youth and um, folks on the land, and that those people are making recommendations and then involved in the processes of planning of which areas should be completely protected, how to reforest other areas. And I think those are some of the programs that have the most hope. I mean, the people who live on the land, who historically, um, you know, are, are literally living on their own unceded territories that they've had a connection to for thousands of years, they're going to know um, uh, how to manage and steward uh, those forests um, better than anyone else. When you marry that indigenous knowledge, that indigenous leadership and guardianship with forestry science, which some of these programs are doing, um, that's awesome. I think that is actually true reconciliation, where where indigenous leadership and indigenous knowledge is respected, where they have decision-making authority and are resourced in order to run their own programs, and where they're welcoming a conversation with Western science to figure out what we can learn from each other. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, uh, has uh, huge promise and hope. Can you restore... Um, an area that used to be an old growth forest ecosystem that has been decimated um, to its original splendor? We don't know. I mean, these forests that are being destroyed, for example, right now on Vancouver Island, they're a result of 10,000 years of post-glacial activity. Some of those trees are 1,000 years old. I saw a yellow cedar in Fairy Creek that was almost 2,000 years old. One tree, 2,000. It was the size of a house. Yeah. And so... When all of those forests and that complexity is gone, can we restore it? We literally don't know because we know so little about how different species interact with each other. It was only a couple of years ago that scientists discovered that trees are communicating with each other through um, mycorrhizal fungi, networks of fungi underneath the ground. So if there is one tree that is like the mother tree, an older tree of the same species from the same seeds um, with other trees and, and, and another tree, a smaller tree gets sick, that mother tree will send nutrients through the ground to that one sick tree. The mother is taking care of its other tree. They're actually communicating with each other. It's totally fascinating. Um, the work of, there's a, a great new book out called The Mother Tree by Suzanne Simard, an amazing uh, scientist who's done a lot of work in discovering this. But my point is really, we know so very little um, yeah. and we're having such a massive uh, impact. So what we should be doing um, is in any forest, um, trying to maintain the existing characteristics of the primary forest. So that means in a temperate rainforest, it means selective logging. It means um, managing openings so they're not bigger than the natural openings. It 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 means um, you know not these massive roads blasted through, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and in the forests where we have had some more limited selective logging, um, then there is a more of a hope of regeneration because the existing old growth forest will um, uh, still has that strength and diversity. Um, to to heal itself, and and there, but there is some great research now in um, uh, ecosystem based management and also in regeneration. Um, it's going to require patience and it's going to require a lot of time. And unfortunately, that's not how the majority of the landscape in North America is being reforested. It's being reforested for 
um, industrial crops that are as fast growing as possible um, with pretty significant chemical um, inputs. And so um, we have a long way to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, it was fascinating to hear sort of switching gears slightly, this idea that we've extracted so much more than we need and maybe enough that, you know, we never need to extract anything again. Um, and I, cause I sometimes wonder about these sort of more, uh, renewable energies like solar and wind and, you know, electric cars and the fossil fuels that are needed to produce those technologies. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I'm sure you know much more about this than me and I don't know any of the, the measurements or the, um, the quantity of these things, but, uh, if there are any kind of initiatives that are like trying to use excess fossil fuels to produce those products, or are we at risk at all of continuing the same problem in a way just by producing different sorts of technology, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. We have to look at that. We can't yeah. just accept new technologies, you know, without looking at the full life cycle input. I think that that's true. And for sure, solar panels or um, wind turbines have to be made from something. <laughs> so there's going to be metal involved. There's going to be petrochemicals involved. Yeah. Can we get that metal and those petrochemicals from products that from recycling what's already above earth in, 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 instead of more mining? Um, that's something that people are looking into that we have to start doing. I think that's true. But I think overall, when you look at the overall impact of our different energy systems, we have to understand that once you produce that solar panel, once you produce that wind turbine, they are producing energy without more inputs, right? So, there, so because renewable energy is not finite, um, whereas fossil fuel energy is finite. So even once you produce the drill rigs and you produce the refinery to refine the oil and gas, you still have to be constantly extracting the fossil fuel from the earth, which creates toxics, which uses fresh water um, and increases pollution and, you know, dramatic uh, health impacts around mm -hmm. the world from the use of fossil fuels. So I think it, it's very clear that while renewable energies are not perfect, um, they don't have to have this constant input, which relieves a constant flow of pollution and toxics into our in, in environment. You know, there's a great um, saying or cartoon that I read once when it, when it said, um, you know, it had a picture of the like Exxon Valdez and the Gulf oil spill and then and then it and then a and then a whole bunch of solar panels and it said the thing about a sol a, a large scale solar spill is it's just a sunny day. <laughs> you know like they that is absolutely true. So there is no question that renewable energy and electrification infrastructure is going to reduce our impact um on the planet and and keep the world fueled. Um, as we move forward, and that's going to be uh, essential. But of course, it all has an impact. There's no yeah. question. And so we need to make sure that the production of those uh, um, uh, solar panels and, and wind turbines and electric cars have the minimal impact possible, but it will have an impact. Everything we yeah. do has an impact. And the question is, how can we have a minimal impact? Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
yeah, it's like I wish they could, you know, produce those like solar panels too with like mushroom spores and they could be recycled back into the land and like <laughs> we could come up with this to regeneration. Um, well, but yeah. <laughs> and maybe maybe we will in yeah. the future. There's yeah. so many interesting studies going on right now, um, you know, in on what we can learn from nature and how we can use what nature uh, uh, produces. Um, there's a, a great and amazing um, organization and book by a woman named um, uh, Janine. Last name is um, Bancroft, I want to say. The book is called Biomimicry. Mm. And it really looks at real-world examples right now of how we're learning um, from nature in order to produce um, uh, uh, things that are used in industrial society that do actually go back into the earth. Yeah. Well, amazing. Thank you. I I feel very often sucked into quite a degree of existential dread and, and lack of hope. Um, and I'm constantly kind of looking for real world, um, practical, logistical things to do and things to focus on that are not, you know, um, not escapes from the fact that like we may not figure it out or, um, naivetes but like no just uh you know um, well look I, you know and i want to say one thing about hope yeah because i thought do. a lot about this i mean yeah. I, i've spent the last 20 years reading climate science and and the last 10 years reading the fossil fuel industry so yeah. there are definitely days when i struggle with hope um but what i realized is that hope is not something you have it's something you create mm. you know we i feel so lucky to be doing this work because I get to see success all the time, but also I get to be surrounded by people who have a common sense of purpose, who, who also want to be doing this work, who, who under, you know, who, you know, the action, action really is the antidote to despair. I have never felt better than when I stood on the road in Ferry Creek with all those amazing folks and, and, and was arrested. I mean, I really did not like the six hours in the paddy wagon, but the <laughs> standing on the road um, was really awesome. And I, and I just encourage people to, to hold on to the fact that so the scale of change that can happen in our lifetimes is astounding. Like if you look at it not just as the environmental problems we're facing or the climate problems or the social justice problems, but actually look at what is this moment in history we're living in? We're living in a moment where industrial society is recreating itself, where where there the world has woken up. Like when I started 30 years ago, I had to bang on doors to get anyone to listen to any concern about any of these issues. And today they are top of the discussion all over the world. Thank goodness. And you know, again, so much change can happen in our lifetimes. I'm not that old. And when I started campaigning, there was no internet. Yeah. My first campaign that I worked on with Greenpeace, my first forest campaign, they gave me a cell phone. And it required its own briefcase because it was so big. <laughs> right? Yeah, and that's yeah. not that long ago. Right. In my lifetime, I've seen the world entirely change, how it communicates, how information is transferred. And and now we're, we're starting to see the entire shift of transportation, of heating and energy systems. We're seeing massive pushback against the, the corporate control over the means to live. And, and, I, and I, so I think, you know, 
we are capable of so much incredible change. And there are so many exciting changes happening um, in the world. And I just, and I think the staying sane part of it is digging in, finding, finding your people and digging yeah. in on an issue that you care about and, and, and seeing what change you can make. For sure. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. I th- my, the sort of tagline to unofficial tagline to my podcast is fix yourself to fix the world. And I think sometimes we get a little bit caught up in like, did we recycle the can or not versus like, are yeah. you living, <laughs> are you living a happy, meaningful life? Right. And like, does that, and are you taking actions in ways that inspire you? And like, if you can just focus on that and allow the details to sort themselves out, I think we'd likely be a lot better off than worrying about the can. Um, Right. So, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, if you could let everyone know where to find you and learn more about you and the work that you do. And then I know you recommended a lot of books on the podcast, but I have this um, thing where I ask everyone on the show if they could recommend one book that sort of changed their life in some sort of uh, meaningful and impactful way. Um, what might that be? Wow, that's a big ask. Um, I know. Uh, people can find all of the campaigns uh, that we run at Stand Out Earth, pretty exciting climate campaigns on the shipping industry, on the fashion industry, also an old growth campaign and an Amazon campaign, um, just by going to Stand Out Earth. Um, please join us. Um, and um, fossilfueltreaty.org is where you can sign up and endorse the idea of the, of the fossil fuel treaty. Um, one book. One book changed my life um well i might encourage um people right now maybe you know maybe based on this conversation i will say um the day the world stopped shopping jb mckinnon's book it covers everything and it was so well written and so fun to read i learned so much um so yeah i'd encourage people to pick that one up amazing thank you so much Thank you. Take care. Hello again. Thank you for listening to that episode. Um, If you liked what Sephora had to say, I definitely recommend supporting her and her work and actually feeling like we're doing something in this situation where often it feels like we can't do anything at all, which absolutely leads to some of the dread and angst and overwhelm. Um, if you would like to become a member of our Patreon community, you can do that at patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. If you would like to put your name on the wait list, just in case I decide to offer the Lunar Circle again, you can go to anyakotz.com slash Lunar Circle. This is my introduction to astrology and archetypal psychology course. And I really wasn't planning on offering it, offering it again, but I'm feeling like so fucking inspired and motivated by this group that it feels like some kind of like crime um, not to offer it again to those of you that couldn't get in on this round. So no promises, but if you would like to be notified when and if I decide to relaunch it, um, slash lunar circle. Um, yeah, hope to see you part of the Patreon community and I am going to play you out with a Trevor Hall song. Um, also if you guys like the songs that I play on the podcast and you want to have access to a playlist of every song I've ever played on the podcast, uh, if you go to Spotify and type in a millennials guide to saving the world, you will see not just the podcast, but a playlist with a little globe emoji next to it. 
And um, yeah, there's 168 songs. I guess that means I've played 168 and actually 170, <laughs> including the two songs um, that I'm going to play for you today. Anyway, this is Green Mountain State by Trevor Hall. Um, and you'll find the song as well as all of the rest of the songs that I've ever played on Spotify. So feel free to enjoy that. And I will catch you all next time. Thank you for being here, as always, sending my love and appreciation to each and every one of you.
song.